Hello and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everyone. Hi. It's another episode. I know. Katie, this is a special two in a row for you. I know. It's I've never, ever done this before. And you know what? I'm <laughs> actually happy that we did it this way because these are <laughs> these are big topics. And I think I we need to do this more often because it also makes our lives a little easier when we're kind of splitting our content where sure. we're not researching, you know, four or five things a month. <laughs> yes. I, I was happy to yield to you. I was like, oh, yes, please take my spot. Cause I'm really dying not to speak uh, fully. Yeah. Um, you're a real hero. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My sacrifice will long be recorded in the Jedi archives. Um, but Completely. last week's episode was with Amistad part one folks. If you haven't listened, go back and take a listen. Um, please, yes. It's a, definitive exploration of the sort of chapter one the yep. the crime as it were crimes on crimes really yeah um, i mean everyone part of the story. everyone committing crimes yeah it's an it's a it's a globalized world that we think didn't exist really it's the evidence of this is the commerce of the slave trade and the tricky legal waters because every country had different legal laws uh, legal laws about slavery every country every state within this country had different sort of approach oh, to yeah. slavery. so it was a real mixed bag you know it's a really amazing topic to explore and you know we we did it good the first run <laughs> thank you yeah i uh again even even in a part one and a part two it's a it's a humongous topic but we're gonna do our best today to try to really distill the legal stuff and 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 try to make it as interesting as possible because because it anytime you're going through like court Mm -hmm. court documents and stuff like that it can get real fucking dreary real fast yeah. so my main priority was to distill this into the most interesting way to tell this story possible for you guys so when we last left Sinke and the other 52 Africans in Connecticut they had been taken from the Amistad uh, and arrested for piracy and murdering the vast majority of the crew Right. The only uh, survivors are the two plantation owners, Ruiz and Montez, which, by the way, I did say right. I found out. <laughs> Ruiz and Congratulations. Montez. Thank you so much. And the slave Antonio, who was their cabin boy, essentially. Mm -mm. So let's cut to Lieutenant Thomas R. Gedney, who was the commander of the ship, the Washington, the one that had found the Amistad that we talked about last the week. Revenue cutter. Correct. The best, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you might have been thinking, Katie, if they were in Montauk, Long Island, why didn't they just pull the ship in over there? Mm -hmm. Guys, that's a great question. I'll tell you why. Because in the state of New York at that time, slavery is illegal. That's right. But in the state of Connecticut, it Not so is much. legal. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Mama, welcome to CT. Whoa, uh, 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 Full of slavery. So they were in the process of what, frankly, all the states, all the countries did these ridiculous gradual emancipations yes. where it would be like, oh, in, in the case of Connecticut, okay, if you were born in 1784, you still have to be a slave, but only until you're 25, then guess what? You're free. You're welcome. But oh, hey, if you were born before, then you're fucked. You're a slave forever. Yeah. It's <laughs> like we see the roots of select service and like health care uh, eligibility. This is the same kind of legal pretzel that we're talking about oh yeah delightfully awful and also in the case of many stories that i've read and i'm sure you've read these too because this was a gradual emancipation if i have the great misfortune to be working in some obscure farm in connecticut yeah enslaved there they're gonna be like you know what we're just not gonna tell them that they're free <laughs> That is the sad reality too. And yeah. you know, there was a real aversion to disrupting the status quo when it came to black citizenship, particularly Absolutely. Black, black men's citizenship, because they yes. could hopefully they would like to vote. And so you're sort of timing these grenades so that you can also counterreact 
State of New York is a great example. 1820, you know, great they're, example. They're looking at 1827. They're going to free this. They're going to free the enslaved people that were born after 1799. And then they're like, okay, we're going to rewrite the Constitution though in 1821, and make <laughs> there be some crazy rules about black men needing $250 worth of property to vote. All of a sudden, so, and by the way, all white men can now vote. Before it was like, hey, poor whites, stay away. Y'all got to have property. And then it's like, mm, but, you know, yeah. Tiny, little, teeny, tiny gains yeah. taken away. The eugenics <laughs> hierarchy now creates space for you. As a poor white person, you can now vote, whereas a person of color cannot. So, Fantastic. Um, it's so, so yeah. confusing. It's so confusing. They and they and it was clearly designed to be confusing. Yes. And in the case of Connecticut, slavery stays in place until 1848, which is so, so late, late for sobering? a northern state. Yeah, it's it's disturbing. I actually didn't know the year until I researched this. I did not know Connecticut was that bad. Connecticut really was a bad. holdout. And in terms of New England, it was a standout because all of yeah. New England was way ahead of it by decades. And Connecticut maintained. Connecticut is a very complicated state politically. It always Shocking. has been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, but it was. In this moment, it's kind of more New York, but it's also more South Carolina. You know? Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> all, and also it's important to remember in places like Connecticut or in, I mean, especially in New York, for those of you that have never studied Northern slavery, generally we're not talking about plantation life. No. You're in possession of one or two of these individuals. You're having a, a couple of enslaved people who are acting perhaps more as apprentices in your business. If you're yeah. a merchant, they're helping you with your boat or whatever. And obviously they're still enslaved. They don't have the freedom to come and go, but it's not it's not on the same scale as you would see in a plantation having hundreds of yes. individuals on a property. And so, I think I think that scale is sometimes coded as soft. Like there's a, yeah. there's a persistent myth that slavery was softer or more benevolent in the North. And it's not. That's really a myth. <laughs> because yes. it was still an institution of slavery, a free labor. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So crazy. That, that really that really blew my mind. You fucking nutmegger fucks. I was, I was like, I was like, I wonder how she's going to tackle that. Because I'm like, that is Shonda. And that's the reason why the Terrible. trial goes on there. Because they're like, Connecticut, what a great place to try these this these these enslaved people. Well, so Gendy has some very uh, selfish reasons for doing this. So let's get into it. He has placed these captured Africans into the custody of the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut. Get ready for all these crazy names of things, by the way. <laughs> so now he knows, like we said, slavery is completely legal in Connecticut. So he, Lieutenant Gedney, who is a trash person, thinks, ooh, I'm going to get in there and sue for salvage rights for the boat, the cargo, and these Africans so I can sell all of them and make a shit ton of money. Right. Which, garbage. He's garbage. Which the logic fits, unfortunately. Oh, I mean, he's got a great, he's got a great point. Yeah. Got a great claim, right? Right. But he we're talking about the... salvage rights. You're talking about what we talked about with Titanic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the idea being, as Luke explained so well, that if I find something out at sea and I can't get my hands on it, it's the finder's keepers. Finder's rule, keepers, right? bitch. <laughs> he's mine. The, the finder's keepers doctrine of 1507. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, you know, just a, just, a, just a hair away from colonialism. The same rationale. Finders keepers. It's mine. I put my flag Completely. on. It's mine. It's the so most privileged. like, it's the most male territorial it is. nonsense. It is. <laughs> I peed on it. I peed on it. So it's mine now. <laughs> since 20 BC. Okay. <laughs> For real. So he is not the only one who feels that he could make a claim here and mm. try to make a buck here. I'm not going to give you the name of every single dick who tried to benefit from this because there are a lot of them and we don't kind have that kind of time. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but I'm going to give you some of the major players who have things to say about this situation. So obviously, like I said, there's Lieutenant Getney. He files his libel for salvage. But then we have these two fucking dudes. They're my favorite. Henry Green and uh, Luke, tell me how you think you say this. It's P-E-L-A-T-I-A-H. Pelatia? Pelatia? <laughs> sounds, like sounds like it's missing an end of a word. Like I, I want to say know. Plutarch, but it's not that. No, his name is, his last name is Fordham. So they're nice. just known as Green and Fordham. So Green and Fordham filed a libel for salvage and claimed that they 
had been the first to discover La Amistad. And this is how why they made that claim. They had been shooting birds on the beach in Montauk, Long Island on the morning <laughs> of August 26th. They had met some of the Africans who had come ashore mm-hmm. and they said they they began striking a bargain with them trying to quote unquote quote trick them right. by saying oh if you give us gold we'll take you back to africa but in the court they're saying no no we helped capture them and right. we were gonna do the right thing and so they think because they were part of that process they should have salvage rights so this again, is the, like, the famous, keepers right this is like the famous engraving which we posted um, of the party landing from the ship of the Amistad on the beach and they're treating with a small group of men. I think it's like meant to convey the same, that moment when they first made yeah. contact on Long Island. I think you're right about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then of course, next we have the plantation owners, Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montes. They of course file their own libel being like, they're our property. These slaves right. belong to us and the cargo in the ship belongs to us and the fucking ship belongs to us. No one gets any of this it's ours and they're fighting for their right to illegally trade slaves am i getting that right let me get that right (laughs) no they're not illegal they don't tell anyone that (laughs) yeah because where are they intending where are they intending to drop these slaves off in connecticut or new york no no they were going back to this was something that i didn't i forgot to correct you on last week because i think you misunderstood they navigated towards america yes they drifted what was their intended destination when they left cuba florida another part of cuba right right (laughs) it was like a two-day trip that's right So, and they just like made a hard left and ended up in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine if they'd ended up in like fucking South Carolina, we would have never heard we anything had to about know. this. Sinke, Sinke had to know, like after they <laughs> hadn't hit land after how many days, like what the fuck, these guys are slow rolling us. They're freaking trolling us. Like, but at the same time, the trip from Africa to Cuba was really long. And it was they're living in ridiculously hard conditions. You know? And by the time that they were found, it had been about two months. So, I right. mean, you know, it's it's not crazy that it was taking that long. But, yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, they're, of course, conveniently leaving out the fact uh, that they bought them illegally in Cuba. But mm-hmm. we'll get back to that. Then we have... <laughs> The Office of the United States Attorney for the District of Connecticut. That person has been assigned the job of representing the Spanish government, saying, no, no, everything belongs to them. Every part of this should go back to Spain. And this is the most complicated part of this story, but the most important one. So I'm going to try to explain this concisely, but clearly. Okay. So here's what's happening. At this time, Queen Isabel II is sitting on the throne of Spain, who, by the way, had been queen since she was three years old and now is nine when all of this goes (laughs) down. So she is a child. Seasoned. A seasoned queen. (laughs) Yeah. I believe she is also, like, basically the downfall of Spain, the Spanish monarchy. (laughs) Big revolution on her watch. Anyway, so... On her behalf, a Spanish diplomatic council tells the court that the Amistad and the cargo need to be released and the Africans should be sent to Cuba for punishment by Spanish authorities since it involved Spanish citizens. Mm -hmm. Even more importantly, it was declared that by holding the, quote, Negro property, the United States was also at fault that they were in violation of the treaty of 1795 Hmm. that had occurred between Spain and America. And it's complicated. I'm not going to explain it, but it basically has to do with the fact that at that time, Spain was still land holding in the United States and they were figuring out basically the different lines between Florida and everything else. Again, Right. They were, gra- super- they were gradually drawing the maps. Everything is gradual. Everything is piecemeal. It's so annoying. But yeah. anyway, so articles six and seven basically explains that Spain and the United States agreed to protect and defend the vessels of the other party anywhere in their jurisdictions and not to detain or embargo each other's citizens or vessels. So if the treaty holds true, United States is 100% guilty of that in the case of the Amistad, Right. Right. So you might be like, but wait, 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 why is the District of Connecticut involved in this? Thus enters President Martin Van Bitchface. <laughs> President from New York State. Yes. So he has sent his Secretary of State, John Forsyth, to U.S. Mm-hmm. District Court to 
also present the Spanish claim on the grounds that, listen, it was a federally owned ship, the Washington, that came across the Amistad. Mm -hmm. So now the United States is obligated because we have this international treaty. We have to return the ship and its cargo to Spain. Right. We don't have a choice. Our federal guys found it. Is the yeah, custodian now it's of not it. a yeah. now mm-hmm. it's not a Cuba problem. Yeah. Now it's not a Connecticut problem. It's an international this is a federal problem. issue. Don't worry, babies. We got it from here on out. We'll take care of it. <laughs> not so much. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. We got it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But you and I both know, Luke, as any good American should, the president can't make this kind of decision. He can't take <laughs> that power away from the judiciary branch. <laughs> No, the presidency is not not very imperial in the 1820s. But I love his optimism because right off the bat, he's got like a ship waiting, ready to rock. Like (laughs) during the trial, be like, all right, we'll take them now. Well, that's the best solution to everything in the 1910s. We send these people back to wherever they came from. Get them out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. More on Martin Van Buren and his grossness to come. And finally... We have the British. Yes, even the British are involved. But they're, for once, on the right side of history. They're saying, hold the fucking phone. Spain is in a treaty with us to end the slave trade north of the equator. Mm. So this is actually a matter of international law for the United States to release the Africans. Right. So Who the, the hell's British- the arbitrator of international law at that time? I don't know. <laughs> so the British start applying diplomatic pressure. So in Martin Van, Bur- Van Buren's sure. defense, he's getting it from Spain. He's getting it from England. It's a lot of tension. The The country's already tense as fuck because we are decades from the Civil War coming. Right. And homeboy you know, wants to get reelected and all that. Oh, yes. And this is yes, that's right. We're up on the election time. So he mm-hmm. cares a lot about mm-hmm. doing the right thing in this situation. You know, the right thing to get him elected, not the actual <laughs> right thing. <laughs> yeah. And well, he's a New Yorker, so he should be on the right side of history here in terms of anti-slavery. But um, he's a Democrat. Correct. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to hold the whole Confederacy together. Yep. So the British are like, fuck your Spanish 1795 treaty. How about the Treaty of Motherfucking Ghent? How you like me now? <laughs> Stick that I in your Ghent and smoke it, bitch. <laughs> see your treaty and raise you another treaty. I just imagine like a big Gandalf like parchment. Like, you see, I saw your treaty's tiny and not even dusty. Check out this bullshit. <laughs> Pop webs fucking flying off it. So that treaty jointly enforces the prohibition on the international slave trade because this isn't even supposed to be a thing (laughs) so and and eventually during the trial one of the the most important pieces of testimony actually comes on behalf of a british uh what's his name dr richard robert madden Mm -hmm. and he spoke on behalf of the british commission he was literally in charge of helping suppress the African slave trade in Havana. And so his death in his deposition, he said that some 25,000 slaves were brought into Cuba every year with the wrongful compliance of and personal profit by Spanish officials. He also says he told the court that his examinations revealed that revealed that the defendants were brought directly from Africa and could not have been residents of Cuba. So not only is he saying these these men are African, they're not Cuban, but yes. he's straight up saying Spain is not not just complicit, but completely involved mm-hmm. in this. So it's, pretty, it's intense. Pretty, it's rough. Pretty big uh, allegation there, but yeah, they're bearing and, out with the history with the Amistad. Yes. So you can see why this is such a humongous case a lot of a lot of skin in this game for a lot of different people and above all these poor africans are languishing in a prison in a foreign country they have no fucking idea what's going on they Mm -hmm. know that they've you know quote unquote committed a crime whatever that means in this particular land and they don't know who's friendly who's not friendly they are being gawked at when they're out in like their prison yard, essentially, because people are just enthralled by the idea that yes. there's Africans here. Yes, all and about the Africans. The, bu- the feeding frenzy about them was vociferous. Oh yeah, voracious. the pa- I mean the the papers throughout the United States were crazy mm-hmm. over this case, yeah. and with good reason. So, as part of this, yes, Connecticut is obviously very much pro-slavery, but there is a strong abolitionist movement there as well. And 
the Amistad situation is on their radar from the basically the moment they land. Mm -hmm. So they want to do what's right in the situation, but they are also <laughs> they have their own agenda too. That's that's like everyone in this has an agenda mm -hmm. that is not necessarily just about doing the best thing for these poor people. They look at this as a potential landmark case that could push forward the abolitionist cause throughout the United States. Yeah. They're dying and, for a precedent. They're Oh my god, dying. they want it so bad. Right. And now especially it falls in Connecticut. In their lap. Falls in their yes. lap. So they got, quote unquote, lucky in the mm. situation. And leading this charge is the evangelical abolitionist and merchant Lewis Tappan. Yes, and, love him. <laughs> and what's so interesting about this is, and for those of you that maybe don't know, the abolitionist movement is very much tied to this religiosity. <laughs> it's the, That's right. the, and they use the Bible as a way to sort of defend these principles of freedom. And yeah. this also plays a role with, they made it a point once they figured out communication with the enslaved peoples or rally the Africans, cause they were never enslaved um, to them. It was very important that it, they're going to learn to read, but they're going to learn to read the Bible. Christianize so, them. Oh yes. It's yeah. a whole. So again, not the purest motivations because Tappan was all about spreading Christianity. Yes, he was very evangelical. Yes. <sighs> for better or for worse. We'll Which is a hot that. button term. And, it is. And does it mean is. different things in different times, but it, it is the ultimately the idea of the evangelist idea. That's his that dream. You're right. You're spreading the gospel. Yeah. Um, and you know, he wouldn't look at as, so you are looking at your religion as a superior one or whatever. We we can look at these things with a very modern lens, but his he thought his ideas were pure. And this was, you know, he had the best. Just intention. because the abolitionists believe slavery was wrong was wrong didn't doesn't mean they didn't have racist inclinations and think that people yeah. were savages or backward Correct. or needing to be corrected. So, yeah. you know, those yes. things are not usually <laughs> exclusive, as they say. Hardly. No. So what he does do, which no one else does, is he got the money, honey. So he starts acquiring the legal defense mm -hmm. to help in this case. And the, this group known as the Amistad Committee is formed. And they hire Roger Sherman Baldwin, who is also an abolitionist and an incredibly talented lawyer, already had a great reputation at the time. He That is who Matthew McConaughey plays in the movie for all right. your kids keeping score at home. He was 46 at the time. Matthew McConaughey is like 29 at the time, I think, or maybe 30. So, and not, listen, Matthew McConaughey is like a dreamboat. This guy was not that, but. <laughs> Let's make the lawyer sexy, of course. And I don't know much about his personality i only read a couple like quick little bio pages on him but if he had even half the personality that matthew mcconaughey has in that movie that guy was a good time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah anyway getting back to the actual defense here one of the biggest challenges for the defense of course would be how do we prove where the africans are from because mm -hmm. we've got a serious language barrier here mm -hmm. So it's a member of the Amistad Committee by the name of Professor J. Willard Gibbs Sr., who begins attempting to communicate with the Africans and learns to count to 10 in the Mende language. He, he takes this information and he goes to the docks of New York City and starts counting aloud, hoping that he can find a sailor who speaks Mende, which no is way. so smart, oh right? And believe it or not, he finds James Covey, who is a 20-year-old sailor on the British man-of-war HMS Buzzard, who just happened to be an African who spoke Mende. <laughs> Wild. Gift. It's, it's, again, providence, right? Some things are just meant to fucking happen. This was meant to happen. And here's a fun thing, and you may not recognize him, kids, if you watch the movie, but he is played by the tiniest little babyest, uh, Chiwutel Edgy Four. Yes, he is so cute in that movie. He's like twenty. He's he's actually his age. He's he's a little yeah. baby baby. <laughs> and you know, interesting. His career, twelve years a slave, and this movie. You know, really. Well, amazing. that was what the most amazing thing is. He was in this really intense, upsetting movie for 1997, and then eclipses it with the most upsetting movie yes. about slavery yes. I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I mean, 12 Years a Slave is, is a remarkable film. I will never watch it again. 
I could I couldn't bear to watch that twice. There's no way. Yeah. Whereas Amistad, there's some really there's some moments. There's some there's, sleeping because it's a good story overall. There's some yeah. sleeping America, rah rah. We did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think and I get the impression from reviews that I've read that Twelve Years a Slave uh, as a book is actually far superior. Than oh yeah, that's what I've heard too. I've never read. Yeah, that yeah. Before. So maybe I'd read that. But anywho irrelevant in response to the criminal charges against the africans the abolitionists turn right around and say oh yeah well we're gonna file some charges on <laughs> you guys <laughs> assault kidnapping false imprisonment all levied against ruiz and montez and they are arrested in new york city in october of 1839 and of course this pisses off pro-slavery advocates <laughs> big time and really pisses off the spanish government <laughs> mm -hmm. They post bail. Well, actually, Montez posts bail and he's like, fuck this. I'm going to Cuba for a while. Mm. <laughs> and Ruiz decides, well, I'm not going to because I like it in New England. And I think people are going to be more on my side here if I stick <laughs> around. And that is kind of what happened. People I met some like, really nice people in New Britain. And I <laughs> I've had the lobster here. And it is. <laughs> have you had a lobster roll? Why would I leave? <laughs> Their whole state is about spices, nutmeg. I just like it. They love slavery, and you know I'm all about that. True, true. So it's a lot of tobacco farms in the Hartford area, sure. Oh, sure. So finally, come January 7th, 1840, which means these poor people have been languishing, languishing in is the prison word. for mm -hmm. months. All of the parties, with the Spanish minister representing Ruiz and Montez, appeared before the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut and present their arguments. The abolitionists' main argument before the District Court was that a treaty between Britain and Spain in 1817, the one that, that Britain had talked about, saying there isn't supposed to be a slave trade. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and they say that these slaves had 100% been captured in Mendiland, which we mentioned is now Sierra Leone. Yes. And were sold to the Portuguese trader in Limboco, who we'd also mentioned before, in April of 1839, and then taken to Havana illegally on a Portuguese ship. That would be the Tacora, that horrible, horrible ship we told we told you about. Right. Uh, the Africans were, by their account, victims of an illegal kidnapping, and so the abolitionists argued, I mean, first of all, if someone kidnapped you, wouldn't you try to defend yourself in that situation? And more importantly, they don't belong to anybody. They should be returned to Africa. Right. If we're going, and that was a really, it was a smart tactic they took. And this was probably a point of contention among some of the abolitionists. I think some of them wanted to go for the, it's wrong, this is wrong. And they were like, no, no, we're going to win this case by making it about the question of property. Because if Connecticut still looks at these human beings as property, then we have to explain, but these aren't enslaved peoples. These are Africans. Correct. So it's, yeah, it's so, I was saying to Luke before we started, the amount of semantics that needed to be used in this case are wild. There's, yeah, the assumed status that the plantation uh, dealers, Montez and Ruiz, were trying to go with, right? Their story of falsifying the yes. birth records of the Africans. There's yes. the whole you know conceit of in, of slavery in general and the whole thing is extra legal you know depending on what country or state you're talking to yes so obviously that these papers are part of the court and the uh defense is saying these are bullshit mm -hmm. these are saying that they'd been in cuba since before 1820 correct and saying that they were born slaves there but that's a hundred percent inaccurate they also go along with that, um, and again through the testimony of uh, testimony of that British doctor, explaining how this is a known thing there, and officials are completely complicit yes. in this. They're a hundred percent a part of it, and that's a pretty good argument to make in this situation. And again, this is where Martin Van Buren is really getting nervous because it, it is becoming more about pissing off Spain <laughs> as this trial goes on. Uh, so. Ultimately, they all have their say. They all have the ability to say who deserves what in mm -hmm. this trial. And again, I'm not going to go through the entire judgment because it's not necessary. The most important thing you need to know that in the district court, Judge Andrew T. Judson 
rules in favor of the abolitionists and the Africans. And he says the Africans are to be returned to their homeland by the United States government. And you know what, fucking Lieutenant Gedney, fine. You get to have some of the cargo because you found the fucking ship. <laughs> I mean, I you're doing a, you're doing amazing justice to this, but like this judge Judson was a real SOB. And the fact that he came down on this on the right side is I think pretty interesting. It's a it really says a lot about pure reading being, of the law. Of being a man of the law. You yeah. know, I thought a lot about Guys, I'm so sorry. We always talk about the same like three things, but I thought a lot about <laughs> John Adams because the story involves his son. And I thought about John Adams always saying he was a man of the law, that he was for the law, which is why he defended the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's right. So it's the same thing. It's like it doesn't necessarily matter what you believe in mm -hmm. when you are <laughs> part of the courts. It's about the law. Correct. You can check all your bias. Which and can totally bite you in the ass, too, because you could be, you know, doing things that feel wrong to you. Yes. But it doesn't matter. That's not your job. Your job that is, is to read the law. And I think it stings us because we know how partisan people are now, especially in the oh, courts. Oh, yeah. You know? It's tough. It's definitely yeah. tough. Not to so, derail you. Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. And we... <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to cry right now. So we'll come back to that okay. another time. We'll go offline with that, with some Prosecco or something. Um, <laughs> Mimosas and liberal tears coming to you next. next series. Coming to you live from the Mormon Museum. <laughs> Needless to say, Martin Van Buren is not happy. So the U.S. attorney for the District of Connecticut, by order of Van Buren, immediately appeals this decision to the U.S. Circuit Court. And much to his chagrin, it is affirmed by Circuit Judge Thompson. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm, I'm upholding this and still will not let this go. Because, again, it's as very disconcerting as a Democrat trying to get the Southern vote in terms of relations with Spain. So they push for it and say, we got to push it to the Supreme Court. And it was also a good idea because at the time, five of the nine justices were Southerners who either currently or formally had themselves kept people as property. No! Yeah! This so is not, not going to go well, is it? So not the ideal audience for Baldwin and his clients. No, it's like going into the Roe v. Wade with our Supreme Court right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> topical, topical. Sorry. Um. Anyway, so the defense goes, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's not great news. Basically. And this must have been so also just so painful for the Africans who likely believed that they were on their way to their lives again. Um, so sadly, no fucking politics gets in the way. And the defense, the abolitionists are like, okay, we got to kick it up a notch. We need more power behind us. And so they have this plan to employ, and this is a brilliant strategy. They are going to bring on former president, John Quincy Adams to join the legal team. Amazing. <sighs> Stirring moment in history right here. President Adams, who was a congressman at this point, he continued to serve in the government, which is amazing. The political career tracks of our early presidents are fascinating. The Adamses especially are maniacs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, yeah, it was a couple of outliers like Taft become Supreme Court justice after yeah. the It's really interesting. Like, we think just we, ride we think president and like lecture circuit now. And like That's back then I'm it was saying. like, no. I'm not just releasing my book and letting the cash roll in. Right. No. Enjoying my silver hair. Yeah. I care. But this is the difference. I actually care about the government. I'm, I'm a public servant. the government and I want to mm. be part of it. So it's, yes. it's, that's, a, that's a true public servant. So, so it's important to note, this motherfucker is old. <laughs> he is like permanent public servant. So old. President Adams, like his, like his father, President John Adams, was an excellent lawyer and truly just marvelous when it came to opening and closing arguments at trial. His nickname was Old Man Eloquent. Yeah. And <laughs> old he was. He's 74 when this happens. Okay. And he honestly, when he was approached at his home by Tappan, 
he resisted because he was like, bitch, do you know how old I am? I am old. (laughs) (laughs) I am old. I'm infirmed. I haven't been to court in forever. Correct. I'm the wrong guy. Taking me out of retirement to do it. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately, he accepted the invitation to be of counsel. And he stated that, quote, there is in my estimation, no higher object upon earth than to occupy that position. And in October 1840, uh, he supposedly wrote in his diary, I implore the mercy of God to control my temper, to enlighten my soul, and to give me utterance that I may prove myself in every respect equal to the task. So he's got that same ambitious fire his father did. So I think a little bit, a little bit probably was vanity. But he He was still in the shadow of his daddy and his presidency was meh. Absolutely. And but he does come from a long line of individuals who were very anti-slavery. And so this does matter to him in the long run. So it's he's the guy. He's the perfect guy for this. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine a former president arguing a major case in the Supreme Court? I can't. It seems like fan fiction now. Yeah. Um, And but you're right. You made the point clearly, like the echoing of John Adams defending the British soldiers after the Boston massacre. This is an echo of that. And you know he felt that. You know he said that. I have chills. You, you know the 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 echo and rhyming of history. Two presidents, right? Two lawyers of the you know indefensible. (gasps) It's just. Beautiful. Giving me all my early America feels right now. Ooh, sweating, I'm a shift girl. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> well, but it's, it's my we just this is you, you know you read the raw data of a story like this and you make these interpolations and you just think, wow, can you imagine what it would feel like if this was happening to you? Or you can even just empathize with the emotionality of the moment. And it's just yeah. this story has it on all the angles. It's amazing. Uh, pretty romantic so, and concept. Yeah. It is. It is. Which is why it played so beautifully in a film. <sighs> this whole part of the story is gorgeous yes. in the movie. Very well right. done. <laughs> Unfortunately, as beautiful as it is, the speech that uh, Anthony Hopkins does in the closing arguments is largely fake. Yes. <laughs> for I, the movie. That does not exist. He does not talk about it's the Civil beautiful. War. He well, that's not. the main thing yeah. is that um, he does say, if this causes a civil war, let it come. It'll be the yeah. final battle of the American Revolution or something like that. Yep. No one was talking about the Civil War, nope. just so you guys know, in 1839. They no didn't know it was happening in 1861. They didn't know. <laughs> no, no one thought it was going to get that bad. <laughs> yeah. There was no, you know, bleeding Kansas was a long way away. No one was that mad at each other yet. <laughs> no. So. It was simmering, but. It was simmering, but we weren't, we weren't boiling. We weren't mm-hmm. even close to boiling. Mm-hmm. So. It is February 23rd, 1841. Again, this is forever. These men, these men and women, these these people, they have not been home since 1839. Yeah, they've been held for two years now. Yeah, it's it's wild. And so oral arguments begin. And uh, the U.S. Attorney General Henry D. Gilpin, which is such like a, you sound like an asshole. <laughs> His primary argument is that these men aren't from Africa, that the papers that they found proving that they're slaves aboard the Amistad, uh, they it, it says that they are Cuban-born slaves. These are real documents. And that court had no authority to question their authenticity, that they, they couldn't have, they have rule no them to me. They have no what? Authority. Ah, got it. <laughs> you only understand it when it's with that accent. I do. Uh, I know. So therefore, that would make the Africans slaves and belonging to the Spanish government. And by the way, I just summed that up in two kind of mediocre sentences. <laughs> that guy did all of that in two hours. <laughs> but right. he ain't got nothing on Baldwin, who spoke for four hours over two days. <laughs> because uh, here's the thing. Adams was nervous and he said and he basically said I'm not doing opening arguments because I don't feel prepared enough yet I need more time it must have been very scary if you haven't actually been to court in a while and you're of a certain age and And you're gambling with your legacy and a lot and this is so important like I get it you don't want to go out and also in having 
you know, more time to prepare. That also meant he got to hear the other side talk, which is super helpful. Yes. So finally, when it is Adams's turn. Oh, well, before I get into that, let me just give Baldwin's arguments one more time. So he's doing the opening arguments and he is basically saying the Spanish government is trying to manipulate the Supreme Court to return these individuals and basically continuing to provide similar arguments of like the Spanish government is completely complicit in all of this. Mm -hmm. They're breaking treaties left, right, and center. Um, Putting the Spanish uh, Spanish on trial. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And saying like this... The whole core issue here is you're saying they're property and we completely have proven that they are not, right? Mm-hmm. Four hours later. <laughs> Oof. Luckily, it wasn't consecutive. He did it on the 22nd and on the 23rd. Yeah. So thank God for everyone. Giant sweat so, stains everywhere. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's February. Maybe it wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, so, of course. Uh, John Adams comes and argues brilliantly. And he emphasizes that the treaty that the United States had signed with Spain only applied to property and did not apply to people. Mm-hmm. Reaffirming the fact that the testimony given by the Africans and the other witnesses proved that the Africans were born free and should remain free and be returned to their home. Right. The language that he uses He's, he did this so smartly. He is trying to evoke the founding fathers, his own father, the fathers of the Constitution, mm-hmm. and remind them, remember why we did all of this in the first place, you guys? What the Republic is supposed to stand for? And unlike a lot of other people of, involved in this situation, he actually knew those guys because yeah. <laughs> he's been alive and in government for that long. Which is his greatest trump card, you know, for as much as oh, they want to totally. throw out the old water, the old guard. It's like, hey, you I think was about there. that people spend their entire lives becoming lawyers who study the Constitution. That's that's their whole gig. And this guy could be like, no, no, I know what they meant to say. I can interpret it because I was fucking standing next to him and yeah. we talked about it. Right. I can tell you what wasn't in the Constitutional Convention notes that Madison wrote, okay? Yeah, like, you know. I've seen them. So. Hmm. <laughs> so a good example of, of this is, um, and this is a little bit of paraphrasing and a little bit of him, is in his primary argument, he says that the Africans had, quote, vindicated their own right of liberty by executing the justice of heaven upon a pirate murderer, their tyrant and oppressor. So it's a lot of that the metaphor for American independence, a tyrant. Yeah. That they're doing on the ship at micro level. So smart. It's very smart. And it's in keeping with the rhetoric of, of, of the, of the, of the slain of sin of slavery being baked into the declaration and the constitution. It's stirring. It's very compelling. And he says, I appear here on the behalf of 36 individuals, the life and liberty of every one of whom depend on the decision of this court. (sighs) Yeah. And by the way, you might have noticed I just said 36 individuals. Yeah, we we lost some bodies there. We lost a a lot of people just languishing in fucking prison. Isn't that awful? But isn't this it is true? Taking this taking too is, long. This is despite the efforts of like, there's so many celebrity abolitionists who are like donating stuff to these guys in jail, clothing and food. But and think about the 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 time period. Also, their are not equipped to deal with living in a new continent. You know, I get it. So that, and also like just living in any kind of close quarters in this time period in an un, you know, not in a well gross New Haven jail. Yeah. You're gonna. I mean, if fucking James K. Polk is about to get cholera, <laughs> no one's safe. If you can die from ice cream. <laughs> you're done. Nobody Goodbye. has a stand chance now. <laughs> so, oh, it's fantastic. So here's a little bit from his uh, sort of the last bit of his argument. It's just there's so much great stuff in here. I wanted to, re- to read it to you guys. Mm-hmm. He says, I said when I began this plea, that my final reliance for success in this case was on this court as a court of justice. And in the confidence, this fact inspired that in the administration of justice, in a case of no less importance than the liberty and the life of a large number of persons, this court would not decide, but on a due consideration of all the rights, both natural 
and social of every one of these individuals. I have endeavored to show that they are entitled to their liberty from this court. I have avoided, purposely avoided, and this court will do justice to the motive for which I have avoided, a recurrence to those first principles of liberty which might well have been invoked in the argument of this cause. I have shown that Ruiz and Montez, the only parties in interest here for whose sole benefit this suit is carried on by the government, were acting at the time in a way that is forbidden by the laws of Great Britain, of Spain, and of the United States, and that the mere signature of the Governor General of Cuba ought not to prevail over the ample evidence in this case that these Negroes were free and had a right to assert their liberty. So he goes on and you can just you can hear all that beautiful, very constitutional language. I mean, he's he's so smart. Rhetorically, he's, he's killing I know. it here. Yeah, <laughs> he is nailing it. Um, yeah. And his his the main thing that he keeps putting forward is in a from a criminal perspective, they shouldn't go back to be to Spain or Cuba to be tried because there's no crime here. Right. They were defending themselves. Right. They're not property, they're people, and they have the right to protect themselves. So, you right. know. The grievance is with their kidnapping, with their, you know, denial of human, basic human rights that started way back in Sierra Leone. Yeah. So let me read this one little last bit. I could, I like, so much of his stuff is golden, but my God, it's dense. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've tried to like. Huge run on sentences. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says. Little did I imagine that I should ever again be required to claim the right of appearing in the capacity of an officer of this court. Yet such has been the dictate of my destiny, and I appear again to plead the cause of justice and now of liberty and life on behalf of many of my fellow men before that same court, which in a former age I had addressed in support of rights of property. I stand again. I trust for the last time before the same court. Wow. Uh, so good. And then he turns to a force ghost and his body disappears. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, you're writing for the historian. You're, you're, oh, yeah. you know, the moment you're, you're living through, you know, that's absolutely really yeah. quite impactful. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the evil judge Tawny is on the Supreme court at this time. One of the real baddies that comes later I think with Dred right Scott. There's, that, a, yeah. there's some real conservative, almost a Republican, some real conservative <laughs> democratic, however, you know, however they were categorized politically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some real tough Southern SOBs who are working real hard. To and they the outnumber the northerners on the supreme court which is why it is phenomenal a phenomenal miracle that the supreme court rules in favor of the africans accepting the argument that they were never citizens of spain they were illegally taken from africa where they lived in a state of freedom it's also ruled that because they were prisoners held against their will, this was a matter of self-defense mm -hmm. and they had the right to murder their captors to free themselves from their bondage. Mm -hmm. The court absolutely acknowledged that it did have obligations to Spain under the treaty, but it made it clear that the treaty, quote, never could have been intended to take away the equal rights of free men. And we've the court has decided these are free men. So sorry, Spain. <laughs> um. Now. Here's the asterisk. Mm. All of this being said, the judge also goes out of his way to completely absolve the U.S. government in terms of repatriation mm -hmm. or even funding the Africans' voyage back to Africa. That's not very nice. It's not so nice. And they also made it very clear. Listen. Also, this doesn't mean that anyone who's classified as a slave here in the U.S. has the right to rebel against their captors. So don't you get any ideas. Right. This wouldn't work. This is a very specific situation, a very specific set of circumstances. Yeah. And this won't work in the court again. And this would be a totally different result if it was a Charleston schooner that ended up in Maryland. Forget about oh, yeah. it. Different story yeah. altogether. In fact, yeah, it's a Spanish because... ship. It's international, illegal. Absolutely. Because, again, according to the law of the time, those 
those individuals are property. So yeah. they don't have the rights that the Africans have. So make it make sense. I certainly can't, but it's whatever. incredible to think that the institution of slavery was still legal. Someone could still be a oh, yeah. slave if they were born at the wrong time or if they were owned in the wrong place and are held in the wrong place. But, you know, it's the worst thing imaginable to people living through that time if they're if they're filled with the abolitionist spirit. Yes. And to think that it's something that is defended by law, maybe not in your state completely, but it's gradually being phased out. Um, to think that every day that the worst thing you could ever think of is a, a, a legal thing and it's an accepted thing and a normal thing. And alive and well, yeah. Is hard to embrace. Like we can think about it intellectually, but I think about it like, what was that like to just be? To just live amongst it. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I hate to get too political, but you can make the same comparison to like the worst executive you've ever, you could ever think of in terms of the White House, like living through that era. Who's that? I don't know. About? <laughs> um, Nixon, clearly. Um, I was there during Nixon's administration. Um, no, oh, me too. Know. Yeah. But like, what is, you know, and we know what it's like to live through a moment that's hard and painful and you still live in your life, but. But it's a weird, I mean, listen, let's stop pretending like we aren't still on <laughs> the leftover timeline. <laughs> not over. Okay. It's not, it's over. not over. It's not over till it's over. Yeah. Um, it's that last so, battle of the American Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so while all of that sucks. Yeah. Ultimately, this is a win, even if it doesn't really impact the United States in terms of their view of slavery. It at least upholds the agreement it had made regarding the slave trade and really creates this landmark case about basically that treaty supersedes anything else that we've said we would do or wouldn't do in in this very specific case yeah. right and put a lot more pressure on cuba and spain to be like you need to get your shit together so yeah. so here's the final credits of the movie mm -hmm. <laughs> after the decision of course the africans are relieved and overjoyed but there is no way for them to get back because yeah the u.s doesn't have to do it they have no responsibility in this Mr. situation in his checkbook which is funny because if you think about it like this Initially, early on, they were saying that, well, a federal ship came across the Amistad, so technically it's our problem now. But then they're like, well, it's not our problem now. Yeah. Pick it and choose it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Always. Yeah, they, they need to figure this out. It's going to require raising funds on the part of the uh, abolitionists. And oh, and. There is some good news, other good news that comes about at this time. They learned that the British had actually destroyed Pedro Blanco's uh, Lamboco Slave Depot, the one, the horrible one I told you guys about last time. So it was it was ended around the same time. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> it is. Um... Just good news on good news. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they uh, Oh, the best part about this, by the way, also. The fact that the United States won't pay for any help in this situation, and they're certainly not going to pay for like, sorry, we've kept you here for years. Sorry, some of you died. Sorry, a bunch of you have died. Sorry, you've missed, you know, your families and your life and all that other stuff. You don't get anything. Oh, but we're going to make sure that those naval officers get some shit out of this because they've yeah. been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, the abolitionists do raise money for the trip. In the meantime, the Africans are um, living in uh, Connecticut. People have yeah. taken them into their homes. They're providing funds for them to live. The abolitionists are pushing their Christian agenda down their throats, left, right, and center. <laughs> trying to to, some, turn to them. some effect, I believe, right? Oh, to massive effect. Yes, especially <laughs> with Stinke. Yeah. He bought into it completely. Yeah. And so they achieve their goal of getting a ship and getting them back to Sierra Leone. Only 35 actually ever make it to Africa. There were 36, and one of them actually, I believe, drowned while at God sea. God almighty. I know. It's just endless, the suffering After all of the story. I know. And the other thing that's really tough is uh, we don't necessarily know the outcome for all of these people who went back. Because a lot of them went right back to being at risk of enslavement again from these warring tribes and these cor corrupt individuals like Pedro Blanco, who were able to strike deals and continue to do these illegal operations. It really isn't until everything ends in Cuba that this is totally annihilated. And British, the British are obviously trying to do their part and police this, but the Spanish really aren't. 
So, you know, it's still a big fucking problem for a while. Um, In terms of Sinke himself, supposedly his family had been murdered. Oh, his wife and his children that he left behind. While he was gone. Yeah. So great. Um, And I don't know a ton more about him. That's a whole other side mission (laughs) that you guys could look into that I haven't of what I found. It's limited information. The one thing that I did read about him was that he did get very into the Christianity side of things. The American abolitionists started a mission in Mendyland mm-hmm. where, where, you know, Sierra Leone today. Uh, so Tappan's dreams are coming true. The village of Mo Tappan would be the site of a mission to the Mende people in Sierra Leone. It is still uh, named. It was named for him. It's still there, I think. Yeah. And from this Amistad committee, they also created this American Missionary Association, which is about sort of this, not just bringing Christianity to countries, but bringing aid and things like that. So right. that's the thing with the missions that's tricky is it does do a lot of good things, but in return, they want you to love Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> And to, and to difficult effects. I mean, I won't pretend like this mission there was great because they got very angry that some of the Africans, they sort of reassimilated to their culture and wanted to be polygamists, wanted to, you know, worship their gods. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's just that's who that's who they are. That's their culture. So it didn't go so hot. In addition to the fact that similar to losing many Africans in the United States, many missionaries died in Africa as well. So what's really incredible is in his final years, apparently Sinke was the last one to ever have contact with the mission. And in 1879, he super old, Mm -hmm. he makes his way back to the mission to die there. And he's buried among uh, some of the American missionaries who were buried there as well. Wow. So he's, his grave is there. Isn't that incredible? It also just shows you the power of exchange and ideas and like just, you know. I mean, they you, saved him. They did. Yeah, right. At the and end you of think the day. you can restore somebody back to their, to the way they were, but you know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the impact is there in terms of Christianity, but also the fact that he was an accused. He was this leader of this group, yeah. which I can imagine must have been so excruciatingly difficult and uncertain for two years, being in a foreign land, not knowing if you're going to be sold to somebody in North Carolina. And, and here's the thing. I, unless I'm mistaken, I believe the Supreme Court case is called like the United States versus Sinke et al. Right. Like his name specifically is mentioned in it. So right. yeah, he's... It's it's absolutely wild. Um, and the last part, little part of the story, uh, is what happened with the Spanish. For many years, the Spanish government continued to petition the United States for compensation for the ship, the cargo, and the Africans. Ew. <laughs> they ew. couldn't fucking let it go. And e- oh, even more ew. A lot of Southern lawmakers tried to introduce resolutions into the United States Congress over the years to appropriate funds for that. Right. I including think Hiram, support. Hiram Gates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Including support from President Polk and President James Buchanan. Polky. Glad Polky. you fucking died. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad no one wanted to marry your ass, James Buchanan. <laughs> this was a really dark period. And <laughs> so I believe Judge Judson in Connecticut was part of what's called the American Colonization Society, mm. which was a group that was dedicated to repatriating people back to Africa. Yeah, which sounds and that's good. an idea that gets recycled over and yeah. over again. Yeah, and they were like even. in a gray spot between abolitionists and slavery, pro-slavery. They were more, more often than not just extreme racists. Um, I think there was a lot of – also their motives were – uh, very much fear-based. I think yes. they were scared of yes. Africans being purged the continent here. of these vo- of these potential voters and citizens and my neighbors, right? And possibly vengeful individuals. Yeah, who, <laughs> well, that too. Right. In many places, outnumber us greatly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, that continues. That's that Spanish nonsense continues until Abraham Lincoln is elected. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that gets squashed actually, at some point. JQA, which is what I'm calling John Quincy Adams. Yes. Now, he leads the opposition of compensation efforts basically until what? he dies. Like he he rails against it over and over again. And he called it the the proposal was a robbery of the people of the United States. So fuck 
you. <laughs> yeah. The last words of JQA. Fuck Spain. Fuck Spain. <laughs> I do love tapas, though. <laughs> Amazing. I hope a vampire comes along and kills all your children. <laughs> So that concludes the Amistad, you guys. That's the the total story. Wow. However, the story continues today with all of the amazing ways to dive into the story outside of this podcast. Obviously, there are amazing court records online. You can read a lot of the transcripts, specifically uh, the stuff from the Supreme Court has been kept very well. There was, Luke, I think you posted this already on our instagram the artist who's actually african-american hale woodruff he painted murals beautiful that uh, a few like events that occurred mm -hmm. involving and he called it the amistad and it's in talladega college in alabama he painted that in 1938 which is shocking that he painted that at a college in alabama in around the centennial of the amistad Pretty Isn't cool. that amazing? So mm -hmm. if you haven't peep, peeped that yet on our IG, folks, give it a look. Maybe we can even post it one more time just because they're, yeah, they're the, so the gorgeous. The imagery is stunning because a lot of the depictions are really racist. Very. Um, <laughs> they're really bad. Like any any depiction of a person of color from you know a few centuries ago, especially depictions including of slave ships. The 30s. Terrifying. The yeah. 30s. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. let alone blackface. Like I'm talking like lithographs oh, in yeah, the 19th yeah. century. Just oh, one yeah. flavor of racist depictions in media. Yes. Yeah. So but those those paintings are an amazing antidote, answer, foil to those really gross yeah. sepia tone depictions. Yeah. So there's that that is a memorial. There's a statue of Cinque in City Hall in New Haven, Connecticut. That's been there since 1992. That's right. There is an Amistad Memorial at Montauk State Park, which I have been fortunate enough to see. Montauk, by the way, in case you guys don't know, that is literally the end of the world yes. <laughs> in terms of Long Island. The end of the earth. I live on Long Island and it's like two and a half hours away from me. Right. That gives me some sense of how big this is. I did talk about the Freedom Schooner Amistad that uh, lives in Mystic, but does travel around a bit. Yes. They do uh, walking tours in Farmington, Connecticut. That's where a lot of the Africans were living mm -hmm. in that time period between uh, getting out of the prison and finally getting back to Africa. So they take you to the, the houses where they would have stayed, which the is Stanley really nice. Whitman House comes to mind. Is that one of them? That See, is I don't one even of them. That's one of the historic houses. It's a really That's old awesome. house. And yeah. Uh, yeah, they lean into that story big time. Yeah. This, that, is, that whole operation is run by the Historical Society of Farmington in Connecticut. And then finally, there's the Amistad Research Center at Tulane University in Nowlands, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, it's an independent archives and manuscripts repository that specializes in the history of African-Americans and ethnic minorities. So they are just dripping with beautiful paper artifacts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, so much juicy, great stuff there. And uh, National Archives, too, have tons of stuff. I am just so over the moon with the amount of things that exist from this because sometimes we really struggle <laughs> to find this has items. been well documented but you know i yeah. think when the movie came out like you know in the 90s there was this real upswing to commemorate and understand oh the for Amistad. sure and there were a few advocates that really helped bring it to light because it was largely forgotten in the in the modern which uh, is wild in the modern mind and in ct you know you've got the Old State House, which is where the first Connecticut trial took place. Yes. And that's a beautifully preserved museum now. And um, the Connecticut, the Old State House in Connecticut in Hartford also has a wonderful old cabinet of curiosities mm. with like a two headed cow and like, oh, we love that. Oh, <laughs> yep. So it is also morbid in case it's Come morbid for the Amistad. Uh, big, Stay big, for the two headed animal. <laughs> big shout out to our friends at the Old State House. And if you're ever to visit the Capitol in Washington, D.C., the old Supreme Court is in the Capitol building. So before they had their own building in the That's 30s, right. like in the movie, they depict the old Supreme Court in the Capitol really well. If They may have even filmed it in there, but it looks gorgeous. And you, of course, can always go to Sierra Leone or Cuba. Or <laughs> have you seen this documentary, The Ghosts of the Amistad? No. It was like a PBS documentary that came out in the last couple of years. No. Um, oh my God. So it's actually really good. It's a couple of scholars, like a couple different like American scholars, and they go to Sierra Leone trying to like do some field work about the Amistad and like get closer to it. 
And they, oh, wow. The penultimate scenes is they take this scary canoe tour to Yumboko. Oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. And Katie, it was so eye opening because you're here, you know, you're getting primed about what this, what happened at the site. And it was like a, a holding area for enslaved people. Yeah. And it was low key. I mean, just really interest kind of brilliant how it was done because you have to go through this maze of these mangrove trees that are growing in the water and it's impossible to unravel. So if you were to escape from Yumboko, you wouldn't know know where to go because you're in the middle of this like marshland that's like miles wide. And the fact that this pathway is preserved in the oral tradition and these elders could lead these white men, these scholars of today to the site and they made their own beachhead at Yumboka, which is like in, so like they had slaves bring sand to make the beach because there was no beach. It was the middle of like a marshland, like, like lake essentially, or, you know, river system, but they brought sand from the ocean, like two miles away into this place to make a landing area. And that beach is still there, which is an amazing, horrible artifact, you know, the artifice of it being made for what it was made for. And then the fact that the sand was a witness to the blood and the horrible dehumanizing conditions. Sakura, yeah. Whoa. Whoa. So Ghost of the Amistad, highly recommend. So I guess if you want to explore that, guys, (laughs) you can go there and I don't know, cry. Have you not cried enough? Have nightmares for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's really fascinating how they connect with the Mendy people and oh, yeah. you know I bet it's pretty, I'll have to check it out for pretty sure. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I known this story, but now I feel like I I really know this story and I'm so glad I got to go deep inside and and just read the court transcripts. I'd never really done that before. And it was, mm-hmm. it was just fascinating. And from beginning to end, such an incredibly important moment in history. And I, I'm privileged that I got to talk to you guys about it. So thanks for hanging in there for two episodes. <laughs> well, justice was done to the topic. Uh, thank so you. thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next tour through the museum. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe and review the Morbid Museum Podcast wherever you're listening. You can get in touch with Katie and I at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media at the Morbid Museum on TikTok and Instagram. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, suggestions. And you can get even more content, more access, more morbidity, morbidity, morbidium, morbidness with a subscription to our Patreon. Become a Morbuddy today for just $3 a month you get all kinds of exclusive content katie and i nerding out after we've nerded ourselves to death talking about (laughs) movies content the media the royals anything we want to talk about so we'll see you next time for another gallery talk inside the morbid museum podcast bye friends bye